Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would convince us this morning that your power is sufficient to change us and that your grace is sufficient to comfort us. And Lord, I pray that you would also cause us to go out convinced that you can save. I pray that you would cause us to be more certain, perhaps than ever before, that your gospel is your power for salvation. And Lord, I pray that this would have eternal ramifications in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the key word for this sermon this morning is transformation. So if you're taking notes, you might just want to write that word down, transformation. And I want to start by telling you about a certain human transformation of a girl that for right now we'll just identify her as Kate. Uh, I heard a pastor share this story recently and it was just, I think it's just such an amazing story. This young lady named Kate, when she was 13, her parents put her into this, this school and it was a school where um, the other, it was an all, all girl school and the other girls in this school were just nasty to Kate. They were, they were really rough on her, they picked on her, they bill- bullied her. Um, There's testimony from the time of of, uh, Kate being seen on the stairs just weeping, just dissolved in tears at the way that she had been mistreated by these other girls. And one of the girls, who was interviewed later, said of Kate that in, this is basically a quotation, in our peer group, in our peer group, she was regarded as a non-entity. Well, Kate's last name is Middleton. And that may ring a bell. Kate Middleton married Prince William. And when she married Prince William, she became the Duchess of Cambridge. And her husband, Prince William, is expected to be the king of the United Kingdom one day. Which means that these girls that picked on her, they were picking on the woman that's the young girl that's probably going to be their queen one day. So this pastor that I heard share this story, he said, you know, imagine if you could find Kate on the stairs weeping that day and show her a picture of her on her wedding day. A million people in the streets of London. Uh, Buckingham Palace balcony. Uh, all, all of the trappings of royalty, you know, the guards in those funny hats marching up and down in front of the, the palace there. But, and perhaps more important than that, a husband who cherishes her who loves her, who's going to protect her. So that's quite a transformation, isn't it? And there's a bigger transformation that I want to, a couple of bigger transformations that I want to put in front of you. And and I think that these things really get at what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So I want to put two more transformations in front of you. One of them is the Apostle Peter. Remember him? Denies Jesus three times. And then he's the guy at the end of his life who's crucified upside down because he says he's not worthy of being, of being put to death the way that his Lord was put to death. And he also said this. So he denies Jesus 
trying to avoid suffering with Jesus, but he is so transformed through the Lord's work in him that eventually he says this in 1 Peter 4 verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then the the transformation that we're going to focus on today is the transformation that took place in the Apostle Paul. And again, I want to sort of go from start to finish very quickly in Paul's life. So he starts, we first meet Paul at the end of Acts 7, beginning of Acts 8, when he's approving of the execution of Stephen. He's approving of the stoning of Stephen. And the people who are carrying out that execution, they're laying their cloaks at Stephen's feet. Then in Acts chapter 9, he's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. And this is the guy that becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the guy who takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the guy who is eager to get to Spain with the gospel, the end of the known world. This is the guy who says things like Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tender, breathing out murderous threats against the disciples. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a transformation, a transformation that took place by the power of God. So I've got two applications for you today in the sermon. We're going to look at Paul's life and then Paul's message today. I'm going to tell you what the applications are right now. Application number one, don't think that God can't change you. Don't think that God can't change you. And I know, that, I know that there are things in your life that you've been dealing with for a long time. There are patterns of talking to people, patterns of thinking about people, patterns of behavior. I, we've, we've all got lots of sin going on in our hearts. Don't think that God can't change you. God can deal with these things. God can renew you. God can help you get over that ongoing struggle. Okay, that's application number one. Application number two from Paul's life and message. Do not think that God can't save. Don't think that God can't save. I mean, I know that, look, we've been praying. There are people in our lives that we've been praying for, me and my wife, for as long as we've known each other. She's been praying for people longer than I've known her. Don't think that God can't save. And, And what I'm responding to is the tendency that I know we all have to give up on people. We pray for them, maybe we reach out to them, maybe we pursue a conversation with them, and then we, we get to a place where we think, ah, oh, this is fruitless, this is not going anywhere, I'm just going to move on from this. Don't give up. Don't think that God can't save. Look at the Apostle Paul. Nobody expected him to come to the side of Jesus. Nobody expected him to get on the side of the Christians. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to think with you first about Paul's life, and then we'll think together about Paul's message. So let's start with what we can know from the Bible about about Paul. So he tells us in, we're not going to cover everything, okay? I've got to be selective, all right? There's way too much detail for us to cover everything, so we're just going to pick some things out here. Philemon, in the ninth verse of the letter to to Philemon, Paul says, he says these words, I, Paul, 
an old man. And that particular Greek word, him calling himself an old man, is used elsewhere in Greek literature to refer to somebody between the ages of 50 and 56 years old. So it's kind of a technical term for somebody about 50 to 56 years old. So he's calling himself an old man, and that means he's 50 to 56. And he writes that letter around AD 60. So let's just do round numbers here, okay? Let's just say 50 years old. Maybe he was 56, I don't know. I'm not, let's not get bogged down in unnecessary detail. Let's say he's 50 years old in AD 60. So he was probably born sometime between, I don't know, zero. How do you, AD zero and AD 10. Let's just say 10. He's born in AD 10 and he's 50 in AD 60. Okay, just, just for reference points here. This, Paul tells us also that as a young man, he went up to Jerusalem to study with Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis of the day. And he tells us that he was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee. So he goes to Jerusalem and he's studying with the Pharisees, uh, particularly um, uh, Gamaliel. And he probably went, I'm just guessing, at around the age of 12. And this is, you know, scholars think this is probably the case. That would put him in Jerusalem around A.D. 20. And then sometime around A.D. 27 or A.D. 30, depending on when you date the crucifixion of Jesus, scholars differ whether it's A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, but sometime around that, uh, around that period, this, this Pharisee, this kid in Jerusalem, who's studying with the leading rabbis of the day, he's probably in his early 20s, maybe he's around 20. If it's A.D. 30 and he's born in 10, Paul is about 20 years old. And he's probably like one of these kids that go up to Washington, D.C. to serve some senator or some member of Congress. You know, he tells us in Galatians 1 that he was advancing in, in Judaism beyond his contemporaries. So he's a bright, young, 20-ish year old kid who is, who is advancing in Judaism. He's a zealous Pharisee, and he's probably part of the crowds that are reacting negatively to Jesus. Probably, given the way that he reacts to the followers of Jesus, probably he thinks that Jesus needed to be crucified and it couldn't happen quickly enough. So, um, somewhere around, you know, um, 30 AD, Paul is there in Jerusalem, probably heard Jesus teach. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. And I think what he means is, I once looked at Jesus and I evaluated him according to worldly standards. I thought he needed to be crucified. I thought he was mis misleading the people. I, I was, he, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, that to the Jews, the, uh, the, the gospel is a stumbling block. I think he's probably saying there when he says, I, we once regarded him according to, I was stumbling over him. And then Jesus gets crucified Jesus gets raised from the dead. Jesus teaches his disciples. He, he ascends into heaven, and, and the gospel is spreading. This is probably, I don't, I'm inclined to date the crucifixion of Jesus in AD 30. So a year, year and a half after the crucifixion of Jesus, um, AD 31, AD 32, Paul is 20 to 25 years old, and he decides that this is becoming so serious that it's time to take action. They stone Stephen, and he decides that's not enough. So he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem. He gets these, 
these papers, these documents that authorize him to go to Damascus and to drag away these Christians. He's going he's gonna to haul them off. And, and likely, what he's going to do is try to submit them to some form of psychological torture to try to get them to renounce Christ. And if that doesn't work, well, maybe they'll resort to what they did to Stephen. But he's trying to stamp this thing out. He's trying to put an end to Christianity. And on the way to Damascus, he hears the voice from heaven. He sees the blinding light. You've read the story in Acts chapter 9. It's related later also in the book of Acts. And, and he sees this blinding light and he hears God say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the conversion is instantaneous because immediately he says, who are you, Lord? Whoever you are, you're Lord. You're in charge. Who are you, Lord? And the answer that comes back is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so much happens right there in Paul's mind. Because, because this idea, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, this is, this is the source, I think, of the idea of, of the union of Christ with his people. Because Paul, if you, know, if you think this through, wait a minute, I'm persecuting Christians. Right, and by persecuting Christians, you're persecuting me. Well, how does that work? Well, I'm the head and they're the body. And by faith, they're united with me. So there's so much of Paul's theology that flows right out of that conversion experience. But what, what I want to invite you to do is think about what happened to this man named Saul. This guy, he thought that he was serving God. He thought that he was being faithful to God. And what was actually happening is he was fighting against God, as the book of Acts puts it. And he went from thinking he was serving God to realizing, actually, I'm opposing God to almost immediately he starts preaching the gospel and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at the transformation that, that has taken place here. It's amazing. How does that happen? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll return to that question when we get into Paul's message. Let's, let's go on with his life a little bit here for a moment. So he tells us in Galatians that for three years he went away to Arabia and then later, he, he made his first trip, his initial trip, to, to Jerusalem. And um, so, so now he's probably in his mid-20s. He's probably gone away to Arabia to sort things out. He probably went away to Arabia to reconsider the Bible, the Old Testament, to rethink it, and then to, to con reconsider everything in light of Jesus. And so... He goes on this three-year curriculum of study, and then he comes back. And so in his mid-20s, um, he, he eventually makes his way back to Tarsus. And, um, and that's where Barnabas eventually goes and finds him. And so between probably the ages of 25 and around 39 or so, he's, he's ministering with, uh, with Barnabas, and he's preaching the gospel in various places. And then he tells us that after 14 years... And, and we don't know if this is dated to his conversion or uh, to when he went away to Arabia. But after 14 years, he, he, he finally goes up to Jerusalem. And at that point, he's probably late 30s. And then it's around that time also 
that he and, um, and Barnabas are, are set apart by the Lord and, and sent out to go, um, to go do missions. And it's interesting, in, in Acts 13, verse 2, uh, we read, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And you know, one of the first statements in the book of Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So God says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, and then they're going to go off on this, this missionary journey. He's probably 38, 39 years old. And he goes on this initial journey with, with Barnabas. And I just want to draw your attention to one thing that happened on that journey. And it's in Acts chapter 14. And I want you to consider the trauma that this would bring into somebody's life. Acts 14, verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Uh, how would you respond to that? You're in your late 30s. You, you're, you're, you're trying to communicate to people the good news. Maybe you felt something of what Paul has felt as you try to communicate the good news. And you start to get the sense, you know, people don't really want to hear me talk to them about this. They don't want me to bother them with this information. But I bet they haven't responded like they responded with Paul. We, the Jews, th their attitude was what Paul's had been. You can't go on saying this. And we are so adamant about it that we are gonna we're going to stone you with stones and drag you out of the city and leave you for dead because we are not going to tolerate this message. None of us in this room, I don't think, none of us in this room have faced that kind of opposition to the gospel. But if that happened to you, what would your response be? Would you think to yourself, maybe I shouldn't be so vocal about this. Maybe I should leave the name of Jesus out of this. Just this week in some interactions that I had, it was suggested to me, maybe you can just leave the name of Jesus out of it. To which my response is, if I'm going to leave the name of Jesus, what's the point? What's the point if I'm going to leave the name of Jesus out of this? And okay, it might offend some people. It's supposed to. So, so th this is amazing what happened to Paul. They thought he was dead. They thought he was dead. And he, he doesn't tell us that he decided to reconfigure his strategy. He doesn't tell us that he decided to, to, you know, rethink his approach. He doesn't stop and, and reevaluate everything. Look at the next verse. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. The language used there almost makes it sound like a resurrection from the dead. He rose up and entered the city, and he doesn't even take a day off. Look at the next statement. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, they just go to the next town and they just stay right on point, right on message. What are we going to do, Paul, after this has happened? We're going to keep doing what, we're been, what we've been doing. We're going to keep going around strengthening the saints, preaching the gospel, planting churches. That's what we're going to do. Do you think you need some time to recover? No, I'm ready to go. Let's move. And, and what's remarkable about this is that this is not ultimately about Paul. And I think if we, were, if, we, if we had him here and we said, man, Paul, this is amazing. You are really tough. He would say, that misses the point entirely. This is about God. This is about God's 
power. This is not about Paul's resilience. This is not about Paul's toughness. This is not about Paul's mindset. This is about the power of the living God in the life of Paul. So, uh, late 30s, you know, he's on this mission trip. These amazing things happen. And then there's a controversy over circumcision. And, and um, uh, then he goes on a, another journey. And he spends a year and a half at one point in Corinth. So this takes us probably into his early 40s. And he's, it, we're probably around AD 50 or so here. And then he goes on a third missionary journey. And he tells us about, about uh, well, Luke tells us in Acts 20 that on that particular trip, they stayed in Ephesus for three years. So that would take us probably into the mid-50s and into Paul's mid, mid to possibly late 40s. And then in AD 57, he's imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. And, you know, if we're dating from, from AD 10, 57, or 57, this would put him at 47 years old. And then um, from 50 to 52, uh, I'm sorry, from 60 to 62, he was imprisoned again in, in Rome. So he went from imprisonment in Caesarea to imprisonment in Rome. And um, he spent the, uh, a couple of years there. This is... If it's A.D. 60, he's about 50 years old when he's imprisoned. And again, it's so remarkable the way that Paul responds to imprisonment because it was shameful to be imprisoned in that world. Just like it would be shameful for me to be imprisoned. You know, if, if, if the authorities in this country were to decree anybody that preaches in Jesus' name or anybody that, let's say, holds to biblical morality, they, they are going to face fines even up to imprisonment. And then if I got myself imprisoned, you guys, everybody that knows me, and, and especially other Christians, you'd all be tempted to be ashamed of me. And everybody would think, this is the way that we respond to things, everybody would think, well, you know, if he was a little nicer about things, maybe he wouldn't have gotten put in jail. You know, if he handled himself better, maybe he could have avoid, avoided imprisonment. You know, if he wasn't so controversial, maybe that wouldn't have happened. And, and the same dynamics were at work in Paul's day. And, and Paul's response to this is, look, it's the gospel that got me in jail. And you know what he said? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he writes to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, the Lord's prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. It's amazing, Paul's perspective. And again, it's not about his perspective, ultimately. It's about the power of the living God in his life. That's what it comes down to. Uh, while in prison, up to that point, before, he, before he, he gets himself thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, he's probably written six of the 13 uh, letters that we have from him in the New Testament. While in prison, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And Philippians, you know, it's so characterized by joy. Really, all these letters are characterized by joy. He's rejoicing in the Lord, even though he's in jail. Then he's likely released, and probably, according to church tradition, according to tradition from early Christians, he made, makes it to Spain, and then he's probably imprisoned again, and he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus. And then sometime between the years 64 and 67, he's arrested, 
and he's beheaded. He's put to death. Um, so he, was, he probably lived to be mid-50s, 54 to 57 years old. And just to summarize his life, he went from spiritual death, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he says, he says things like Titus chapter 3, he, he includes himself. He says, we ourselves were once, and then he describes deadness in trespasses and sins. So he goes from death to life, spiritual life. God makes him alive. He goes from blindness regarding Christ according to the flesh to sight. He goes from hatred. He hates Christ. He hates Christians to love the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He goes from hatred to love. He goes from unbelief to solid faith. So let me return to our, our points of application here. And, and, and this is what I want to say to you, because this is ultimately, as I've said, this is not about Paul. This is about the work of God, the power of God at work in Paul. God's work of regeneration, the new birth, when God does the new birth, God's work of regeneration can preserve us through the kinds of things that Paul endured. God's work of regeneration can preserve you through the kinds of things that Paul endured. God's transforming power can make the arch persecutor the apostle to the Gentiles. And God's transforming power can make, I don't know what you're dealing with, greed, lust, insecurity, low self-esteem, I don't know what it is, depression, God's transforming power is enough. God can change you. God can change you. But what happened to Paul has to happen to us. We have to encounter Christ, Jesus, and the way we encounter him is in the scriptures. And then Paul tells us what to do. He says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's so much more we could say about Paul, but I'm going to move now to his message. I'm going to move to his message. So Paul's life and now his, his message. And I, I really want to focus in on... Um, on two things that he said, and both of them are related, and they both have to do with the transformation that I'm talking about. So I would invite you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to think together about what Paul says here. This was our call to worship this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So he's thinking here of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. That's what Paul is referring to here. Now, let's think about what Paul's doing. Paul is assuming the story of the world taught in the Bible. Now, uh, for those who want some technical terminology, if you don't care about technical terminology here and you're not interested in academic speech, just ignore what I'm about to say. 
um, parenthesis here. Um, I'm going to start talking to you about biblical theology right now, okay? And, and I would define biblical theology as the attempt to understand and embrace the, the worldview of the biblical authors, somebody like Paul, okay? And the first component of biblical theology is an overarching master narrative, a story of the whole world, okay? Close parentheses, end of technical terminology. Paul's story of the world is that God created things. God spoke the world into existence. That's where the story starts. Now watch him. What he's going to do is he's going to, from that story, he's going to derive truths. Look at what he says. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's, you hear the correspondence with his own testimony? This blinding light. What is that light, Paul? It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ shining in our hearts. Where's it come from, Paul? God who said, let there be light. That God is taking the same power that he used to make the universe. And he's speaking life into my dead heart. He's causing me to see. Uh, right, right before this, look at verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. God has taken the power that he used to make the world, and he's given sight and life to dead Saul, transforming him into the apostle Paul. Let light shine out of darkness. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So think about the story. God spoke the world into existence. Think about the truth. This is the way that God saves people. The same power that made the world is employed to save people. Don't think that God can't save. Don't think that God can't change. The power that made the world, the power that raised Christ from the dead. Look over at Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You could just write this reference down. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul is praying for the, the Christians in Ephesus. And he prays in verse 19 that, um, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believes. And then, he's, then he tells us about that power in verse 20. He says that he worked that power in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that God uses in, our, in, in the lives of believers, in our lives. So think about Jesus in the tomb. He's dead from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. No brain activity. No oxygen in the lungs. No blood flow. There, there ought to be lasting brain damage if you could resurrect that corpse. And there's not. How? Because the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, gave life. Because this God, his power transcends death. And Paul is saying, that's the power at work when people come to faith. That's the power at work in transforming believers. 
the power that made the world, the power that raised Christ from the dead. Think, think again of the story, and then truths are coming out of the story. God created the world. That power's at work to bring people to faith. God raised Christ from the dead. That power's at work to transform you. As I, taught, as I thought about uh, transformations and, and the way that I've seen this happen in my, in my own life, um, I don't want to embarrass my wife, but when we first met, we were so young, we were so inept, we were so, we didn't know how to do anything. We, we didn't, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'd love to show you this cookbook that Jill's mother made for her because, because Jill's mother hadn't taught her how to cook until she went off to college and so she made this cookbook and it had such detailed instructions, it was like, put water in a pan, put the pan on the stove. I mean, it was step by step. We didn't, we... They, on one of our first dates, um, she, you know those, uh, those packages of like uh, dry noodles with, salt, with sauce? She made me one of those. I thought it was awesome. I thought, wow, you are such a great cook. We were so ignorant. We, and the Lord has transformed her into this omnicompetent wife who's able to do so many things and who's able to cook a lot better things than, than dry noodles. It's amazing the way the Lord has transformed her and grown her in wisdom and in, in, in depth of understanding. God is able to change you. The power that made the world, the power that raised Christ from the dead, is at work as God plunders the enemy to build the church by saving sinners and transforming them into the image of Christ. So there, there's this master narrative that Paul is working with. It's the story of the Bible. From that master narrative, he's deriving truths like God created the world, God can save unbelievers. God raised Christ from the dead. God can change your life. God can make you from being someone who's rude and unconcerned about other people, maybe harsh with other people, to somebody who's actually pastoral. God can do that. Jill could tell you when we first met, I wasn't very nice to people. I wanted to study, and people were in, in the way. They were between me and my books, and I didn't... Now, maybe I'm still not as nice as I should be, but I hope I'm better than I used to be. You know, God can change us. So then there's, there's symbolism that's going to flow out of the story. And there's imagery. So consider the way that Paul talks to the Corinthians when he says things like, uh, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. What he's working there with, he's working with the story of Israel. And he's saying God bought Israel from slavery in Egypt through the death of the Passover lamb, and God bought you through the death of Christ who fulfills what happened with the Passover lamb. So this imagery is flowing out of the story. And then there, there are also things like this, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So under the, in the Old Testament, you know, they get, out of, they get out of Egypt, they build the tabernacle on Mount Sinai under the instructions of God. And what Paul is saying is a new exodus from Egypt has happened in the salvation that's accomplished by Jesus. And we're not building a physical structure, but Jesus is building you into a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then at Sinai, you know, they got the law of Moses. And Paul says to the Corinthians, um, I'm not under the law of, of Moses. I'm in the law of Christ. So the law of Moses has been replaced by the law of Christ. And then we could talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper and the way they factor into these things. But probably the biggest and best thing is 
that Christ is our shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And the way that Moses shepherded Israel through the wilderness to the land of promise, according to Paul and the other New Testament authors, this is the way that Jesus is shepherding us through this. This is why the New Testament calls us exiles and strangers and sojourners. We're on our way to the city that has foundations, the new Jerusalem. We're on our way. And then out of all this, with all this, there are these behaviors that fit with the story. And so Paul says things like this. So just to kind of summarize what I'm saying about Paul's message, he's working with a master narrative. We might call it a meta-narrative, an overarching story. And it comes right out of the Bible. And he's deriving truths out of that story. And then he's deriving imagery and symbolism out of that story. And, and he's also going to derive behaviors from the story. So just listen to this in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says to those Christians in Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What kind of manner of life is that? Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. I heard a story about a missionary um, to um, Hindus, and, um, and this missionary said to, to this one particular Hindu, he says, I want you to teach me your language. And, and the guy says, no, 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 no. I won't, I won't teach you my language. You will make me a Christian. And the guy says, no, 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 no. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to do anything underhanded here. I just want you to teach me your language. And he says, I understand. And he says, but I've seen the way that you live. And I know how much time I would have to spend to you, with you to teach you my language. And no man could live with you and not become a Christian. I will not teach you my language. Because if I'm around you that much, I won't be able to resist becoming a Christian. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Two applications. I'm going to return to these. Don't think, don't think that God can't save. Have you heard the story of the conversion of R.C. Sproul? Do you know this story? This is amazing. I mean, the, you know, the, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And, and the Bible everywhere says it's the word of God that does the work. R.C. Sproul he got saved on hearing Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. That's the verse the Lord used to convert that man. Don't think that God can't save. God can save. And don't think that God can't change you. Paul says to the Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know this. We talk about these kinds of verses all the time. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. You're sexually immoral? God can change you. God can do it. Don't give up. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. You're tempted to look to other things than the Lord? To do for you what only God can, we're all tempted that way, God can change us. Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. 
You're good at ripping people off? None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God is able to change us. I was reading last week about Charles de Gaulle, who was a uh, French, he was a Frenchman who happened to be in England when the Germans overran France in the, in the Second World War. And then the British allowed Charles de Gaulle to issue a call that all free Frenchmen who wanted to oppose the Germans could rally to him and they could together work to, to liberate France. And, um, and this is what this is what this article says about, about de Gaulle. He, was, he, he had nothing. Listen, listen to this. Churchill marveled. So de Gaulle was asking Churchill for help. He needed the British. Churchill marveled. His country has given up fighting. He himself is a refugee. He was out of France in England. And if we turn him down, he's finished. Well, just look at him. He might be Stalin with 200 divisions behind him. You see the point there? He's got nothing. His country's given up, and, and he's totally dependent upon the British, and yet there's this confidence and this certainty. He might be Stalin with 200 divisions behind him. If we know the power of God and the gospel, if we know the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, if we know the God who raised Christ from the dead, we ought to be like Stalin with 200 divisions behind us. Don't think that God can't change you. Don't think that God can't save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the life and message of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we pray that you would make his story our story. We pray that you would so teach us the scriptures that when we think of the world, we think in biblical terms. We pray, Lord, that, that you would cause the, the things that these, these men who wrote the Bible, the things they say, we pray that you'd cause those things to make sense to us because we know the Bible. And we pray, Lord, that their symbolism and their imagery would inform our lives, that their truths would resonate with us because... Their story is our story, that the way they call us to live, the way they tell us not to live, all this would make sense to us because we've embraced your truth. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to worship you. We ask that you would cause our praise and our thanksgiving to reinforce the truths of the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that you would build a culture here, a group of people who think it's normal to say what the Bible says, who think it's normal to believe that you are able to save and you are able to change us. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. You are our hope. And we cry out to you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.